I'm not going to give you some idealistic answer of how some experiences when I was, was five years old in camp shaped me. I didn't take a single finance class uh, in school. So it was like, why not sell my soul into banking, which I did. You know, I'd love to be involved earlier in, in the financings and processes for, for these really exciting infrastructure software businesses. Why not try my hand at venture and maybe a fund that, um, you know, specializes in that kind of investing from the earliest stages? What can this eventually become? What are products two, three, and four that you can roll out? What is this business going to eventually become? A visionary can see that from day one. What's up, everyone? Sherson here. And before you listen to this episode, we want to give a huge shout out to the city of New York. Gen H Pod will be at New York Tech Week from October 11th to the 15th, and we want to meet with you. If you're a fan of tech, startups, venture capital, or just love listening to the podcast, drop us a message to any of our socials and we'll set up time to connect with you. That being said, this week we're launching season two of our VC series. Episode 85 is with Sai Senthokumar, principal at Redpoint Ventures. Sai is a Stanford University graduate and former investment banker turned VC, currently focused on growth investing. Sai looks for emerging companies and markets to support with an infrastructure software. Redpoint Ventures partners with visionary founders to create new markets or redefine existing ones. The firm invests in startups across the seed, early, and growth phases. And since 1999, they've backed over 465 companies with 140 IPOs and M&As, including Netflix, Twilio, and Zendesk. Currently, the firm manages $4 billion across multiple funds. So we speak with Sai about his career thus far. He details the transferable knowledge and networking skills he used to transition from IB to VC. He describes what makes an interesting market or company for investment, visionary founders and how to identify them, and the metrics and factors that go into a successful investment. This was such an information-packed episode to start off the new season that we hope you enjoy. We have Sai from Red Point Ventures. Welcome to the show, man. Excited to be on. Thank you so much. So as always, we always start off with kind of learning how you actually entered the space, um, specifically VC. You know, we've heard a lot of different stories, some from small towns coming from a science background, some from, you know, different yeah. different areas uh, and trying to growing up from there. So from your earliest days, what kind of experiences were prevalent in your life that kind of influenced your pathway into venture capital? Yeah, totally. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to give you some idealistic answer of how some experiences when I was, was five years old in camp shaped me to be a VC. But, you know, in, in school, I, um, I studied engineering and was involved with a lot of startups, um, you know, since freshman year. Um, I even ran a small startup during my senior year and quickly realized uh, how difficult it is to, to build a company. And maybe maybe it's better to be on the other side for a bit and, and see all of the different ideas and work with some stronger founders. Um, and, you know, that experience um, running that startup um, helped me develop, you know, a real sense of empathy and humility um, that I try to bring to every interaction I have with entrepreneurs. And yeah, you know, so my first job out of school was was tech banking. I, I was an engineer at first and, and realized I didn't want to write any more code and I didn't take a single finance class uh, in school. So it was like, why not sell my soul into banking, which I did. But, you know, the good part of that experience was that <clears throat> I was involved with some really exciting financings um, for a breed of software businesses known as infrastructure software, which is where I spend most of my time with. Um, so companies like Datadog and MongoDB, you know, was involved with some of their you know biggest financings and transactions. And that kind of experience was like, hey, I, you know, I'd love to be involved earlier um, in, in the financings and processes for, for these really exciting infrastructure software businesses. 
why not try my hand at venture and maybe a fund that um, you know specializes in that kind of investing from the earliest of stages. So so yeah, that's kind of kind of a roundabout um, you know uh, path, but that's how I ended up at venture. Uh, a curious, like what kind of cross-functional skills uh, have translated the best from IB and going into VC? Yeah, you know, I think one is like a forced like work ethic, uh, you know, when you're w- working all those hours. But I think, yeah. um, especially where I play in, and, you know, we can get more into it, but growth investing, where these companies have some scale and some traction, um, you know, I think modeling and all of that helps, um, uh, you know, tremendously, especially a- as we're going earlier and looking at these businesses and trying to determine these signals earlier. Um, and, you know, the other thing is, I think going back into my experience with tech banking and and spending some time with these infrastructure providers, you know, was able to see um, and learn about these spaces well before kind of entering venture, uh, which I think, you know, has helped. Got it. Got it. And, you know, oftentimes we also talk about this concept of mentorship and someone kind of steering you down the path uh, towards VC or even like banking, whatever it might be for you. uh, First, could you maybe help us define what your concept of a great mentor is and then maybe who that person was to you. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, you know, so a great mentor, I think for me, is someone who's been in uh, your shoes before. Um, it's someone where in X years you would I- ideally come close to being or being um, and you can you know come to them whenever with questions and they will give you honest feedback, you know, on the spot. Um, so, you know, in regards to my role at Redpoint Adventure, I, you know, that's it's an easy answer. It's my partners, uh, Logan Bartlett and Scott Rainey. You know, they've been in the business for a long time. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll get more into kind of Redpoint and our structure, but super intimate team where you can get that feedback where, you know, a lot quicker um, than maybe some other funds where it's a lot more hierarchical. And so, yeah, you know, those, those, two, uh, those two guys have been great. Awesome. And I think it's always important to have that individual who knows kind of what you want to do as a career outlet in terms of where I want to go in the future and just provide you context, especially where you're working at. Uh, the other thing I kind of want to talk to you about is like more personal. And I, I yeah. noticed just the reading some of the stuff that you love traveling and it's a very important part of your life. And so how is immersing yourself in like different cultures and having those experiences enhanced your ability to actually invest? Yeah, you know, to, you know, I think just from a broad perspective, it's it's forced me to take a step back and take a wider perspective on a lot of investments. And maybe I'm missing something or overlooking something. So I think, you know, sort of rushing into an investment, you know, with one particular view. Yeah, it's it's, it's a forcing function to just, you know, take a step back and, and you know, look at it from a 30,000 foot view. And what, what, what's like your favorite place thus far that you've been to and like, what was the wildest kind of thing you did? <laughs> uh, gosh, that's so hard. I think uh, it was probably South Africa with my, with my family, uh, you know, all, all that from um, jungle safari trip down to the Cape of Good Hope and shark cage diving and all that was, it was awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So Red Point. Uh, so you you mentioned earlier that your personal focus is on the growth side, which you know a lot of the listeners are uh, been kind of attuned to kind of the early stage investing, so pre seed seed, but a lot of your focus is on more later stage. And so before we get into those details, could you describe first how you met the uh, team at Redpoint and then the firm's thesis as well? Yeah, totally. Um, so how I met Redpoint, you know, we had, when I was an investment banking analyst, I had a friend who 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 used to work work there, and and from there. 
it was, uh, you know, some really easy conversations. And, and, you know, given kind of my a little bit more technical background, I studied engineering in school and was involved in some of these more technical software businesses. It was it was the right fit. And yeah, so, get, you know, getting into Redpoint, you know, we've been around for over for 20 years um, and we have two separate funds, which is which is most important. So we have an early stage arm that is more kind of seed and classic Series A investing to businesses that are pre-revenue. And we also have a growth fund and we call it early growth in the sense that it's one step after from our early stage fund. So Series B and C opportunity, sometimes Series D into these growth stage businesses that are, you know, have clear product market fit and are scaling rapidly. And we kind of come in to help accelerate those go to market efforts um, and provide some more capital um, in, in for those endeavors. So we have those two funds. I spend most of my time on the latter, the growth fund, where, um, yeah, you know, I, I look at a lot of enterprise software and B2B um, companies, the particular focus on like infrastructure software. So companies that support application level companies like Snap and Facebook. So these are database businesses, data infrastructure businesses, cybersecurity, you know, machine learning, DevOps. That's that's where, um, you know, the growth fund for the past decade has had a lot of success. So, you know, early investors in companies like HashiCorp, um, Snowflake, Stripe, Twilio, you know, these are all enduring brands and legacies, but we've been involved since the earliest of days. So, so yeah, that's, that's right point in a nutshell. Awesome. Awesome. And so, you know, for those of us that might not understand some of the fundamentals and the differences between early stage investing versus growth, could you kind of describe uh, what that actually looks like and kind of those key components or uh, those key things that you evaluate uh, from early versus growth? Yeah. You know, I think, in, in the prior years, it was easier to um, put that line in the sand that, hey, this is early stage and this is growth. Um, fact is, is that a lot of uh, rounds have been pulled earlier. So a, a company that's raising a Series B or C is really a Series A company, you know, by, by the old definition. But I think the way we have always described it is that um, if there's a level of product market fit or clear product market fit, then it would fit more towards the growth side. Whereas, you know, the difference between early stage investing and growth, in my opinion, is our early stage um, partners and investors in our fund, they all come from an operating background. So they have more of a product oriented mindset to looking at investments. They're looking at ideas and, you know, maybe they're not dealing, maybe some of these companies have revenue, but it's definitely on the earlier side. Whereas with growth, it's a proven product. There's uh, a clear product market fit, if not almost product market fit. And maybe there are some underlying metrics. It's more momentum style investing where we're looking at a bunch of different companies in one specific market that are all going after this market for a clear reason. It's a really interesting market. They all have some revenue and we're trying to pick the number one. Um, so that's that's kind of how we define early stage versus growth. And for us, that's, you know, when you get into the specific definitions, series A and C is early for us and series and everything beyond that is growth. Got it. And one of the things that I actually want to double tap on is what's your definition of product market fit? Because, you know, it's a word that's widely used. A lot of people have different definitions for it, but personal to you, like, what does it mean? Yeah, I think if there are some clear use cases that you're able to sell into repeatedly um, and um, it's there's a clear persona of the person that's picking up and calling you guys or, you know, signing up on your website. And and when there is that pattern. Um, that you can see in the data or, or, you know, customers, then we typically are like, okay, there is, there's some level of product market fit in this company. 
And from there, it's, you know, how um, wedged is this company and, and how deep is that product market fit? Got it. Okay. No, well, great definition. And the other thing I'd love to understand is like, what does your day-to-day actually look like yeah. as an investor? Uh, many people just think you guys uh, just sit in on meetings and take calls and it's that classic kind of stereotype yeah. of, you know, throwing money around, whatever it is, but what is size day-to-day like? Yeah, that, that besides Burning Man, um, I think... Uh, it, it really depends on on where you are kind of in the cycle and how uh, how busy uh, it is. Um, so, you know, when you, when you look at 2021 versus 2022, it's it's night and day in terms of what's happening in the public market, public and private markets. Um, you know, back, you know, 12 months ago, every single company was raising. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the day was totally different than my day to, today. So a day in 2021 is, hey, there are these five, six companies that we've been tracking for a while. They're all raising right now. Let's do um, some diligence. Let's speak with our network. Let's figure out which of these companies are actually interesting. Let's start modeling um, and, and all of that. So the days were a lot more structured in the sense that, hey, you know, let's figure out these opportunities this week. We know these other companies are going to raise in the next week. Let's triage it appropriately and go from there. Um, whereas I think 2022, you know, just the venture market has slowed down quite a bit. Um, and, and so maybe there aren't as many companies raising right now, but that doesn't mean our day is, isn't as busy. So I think at least at Redpoint, we've taken a very proactive approach to investing where even before a company decides to raise, we are intimately familiar with the company, the founders, we've helped them in a lot of different ways. And we are doing the research even before, you know, um, they, they, they raise their hand and say they're raising a series B or series C. So our days now are more more aligned around, um, you know, creating these lists of companies, making sure we're building those relationships well beforehand, so that when the markets do come back, we're we're ready to go, and we, you know, we're not we're not left flat footed. Got it. And you know, just to add on to that, what what does like kind of that deal flow cycle look like for a growth stage in uh, investing kind of focus? Because we know early stage, a lot of it comes organically. Uh, yeah. And, you know, founders are reaching out for capital. But how, do, how does that look like from your perspective? Because the volume of deal flow is significantly less at, you know, a B, C, D stage. Yeah, you know, and the typical channels for us in growth is, you know, we're, we're um, pretty close with some early stage investors and we track, we track what they're doing you know, closely and, and we're, we're, we're speaking with them on, you know, their exciting portfolio companies. We also have, you know, use a tremendous amount of data science uh, in our, in our um, sourcing. Um, so we have a lot of different trackers um, and just, you know, products out there that measure signal in the market. That signal in a lot of different ways. It's maybe looking at a company's headcount growth. Maybe it's looking at a company's open source traction if something is starting to pop off. So we have a lot of these data science efforts internally, um, you know, to make sure we're, we're at least not missing companies. Um, so yeah, it's it's a lot of different channels. It's definitely slowed down this year. I, I can say our early stage team has been incredibly busy though. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and but yeah, so there's definitely uh, a discrepancy between early and growth in general, um, and it'll take some time for all of these early stage investments to actually raise. A growth round um but yeah and i feel like you know some some of the later stage focus is less more so focused on say they stem away from like the founder evaluation team evaluation because you've kind of got that cemented it's more so like kind of that total market evaluation as a whole 
uh, and that opportunity. Yeah. And you bring up this concept of, you know, defining an interesting market opportunity. Yeah. So what is that? Totally. And, you know, I think, especially in growth, uh, you're, you're investing in companies where, you know, the valuations can be north of a billion in a lot of mm -hmm. instances. So an interesting market for us is one that's not only here to stay, but also grow very quickly over the next several years. Um, and even better is, you know, if the market is a natural wedge to some adjacent markets that could increase the time. Um, yeah, you know, in, investors often speak about platforms um, and, and what like a platform is. Companies like Snowflake and GitHub, they've created real platforms in the sense that so many other companies are built around those individual ecosystems. Um, and, you know, they're building enduring brands and companies that will be with us for a really long time because they're solving real problems um, that, um, you know, can translate to a lot of other use cases. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we look for those markets that are just growing very, very quickly over the next several decades. For, say, markets that haven't fully matured or they're kind of brand new and they're yeah. kind of developing a brand new stream of market, how do you evaluate those opportunities? Because, you know, there's no historical data to a kind of, uh, kind of signal how this is going to kind of pan out in the future. Totally. So what kind of key metrics and things are you looking at to convince yourself like this actually makes sense uh, to us from an investment standpoint? Yeah, you know, and, and there's no um, like right uh, answer for, for every single like specific instance. I think the first signals we definitely look for are customer love and adoption. And even if they're not paying for the product, there are ways to determine if that product is like really special you know, is this product core for a business continuity? Would people be infuriated if this product is removed? Is this product the, no the number one in the space? And is it 10 times better than number two alternative? Um, so yeah, you know, in a lot of cases, maybe these, maybe these markets and maybe these companies don't have real revenue yet, but a ton of free users, um, you know, classic ex example is, uh, is the open source market and open source businesses. These businesses often don't make money for, for a while. Um, but you can measure user love and adoption through a lot of different ways by tracking the project, GitHub stars, forks, who, the contributors, who's building around the project. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I think we, we like to get creative here um, and look for those signals well before it hits the P&L. And I think those are the, actually the best investments. Yeah. And I, I kind of read this one article by um, Andrew Chen recently. Yeah. So. He talks about uh, this concept of how the market always wins. Yeah. And could you help us maybe define what that means to you? Because like, I found that pretty interesting in the sense that, you know, it's not the founder or, you know, some of the team's execution. It's really kind of the macro level that kind of or like kind of basically determines what your outlook is as a business. Totally. Yeah. You know, and I think it goes back into what matters most for a startup success is it the choice of uh, the product, the, the team, or at the end, is it just the market that determines everything? So yeah, I think when people say markets off, markets markets often win. It, it's it's that the market is the is the most important factor, a determining factor in, in success, in my opinion. And there, if for if for a really good market, you will find a team that excels and and wins that market, and there will be a standalone business. Because um, when a great team meets, you know, a lousy market, may, the, the market still wins. Uh, when a lousy team meets a great market, the market still wins. But when a great team meets a great market, something really special happens. Um, and of course, the market is a deciding factor in the common denominator and all of that. But I think it takes a really great team and vision to fulfill all of that. What would your best piece of advice be for like founders that are, uh, you know, 
pitching a potential market. So they're going to express like, hey, our market is growing X amount of dollars or whatever yeah. over time. Uh, the most common thing that comes to my mind is that they conflate markets. The use case doesn't kind of align through that. So w- what yeah. are some things that you notice uh, through these conversations and uh, things that, you know, founders can correct themselves on? Yeah, you know, I think conflating markets is, is definitely the biggest one. You know, instead of citing some massive TAM number on your first slide and saying we're going to, you know, take all this spend, we would much rather see that a focus that a founder is hyper focused on solving one very specific problem. That is, that is important. Um, and then we can talk about the other markets that you're going to get into. You know, the road, the product roadmap to address those other problems and what like the ultimate grand vision is. Um, but I think obsessive founders tackling one specific problem are often the most successful. Um, so that's yeah. Got it. Okay, so let's do a, a small little case study on one of your investments that you've made, um, and that's on Monte Carlo. So, yep. you know, walk us through how the opportunity first came about, and one, obviously, describe what the business does, but uh, how the opportunity uh, came about, and maybe the first impressions you had uh, uh, of the team itself. Yeah, totally. Um, so, so Monte Carlo is. Uh, a data infrastructure business um, that's operating in this emerging category of, of data observability. So if, if folks are familiar with what Datadog is and what they're doing around IT observability and infrastructure observability, Monte Carlo is doing the same for your data systems. So they prevent what's, what, what data folks call data downtime, what, uh, which occurs when data is wrong and data is sprawled across all of your different systems. So this could lead to a lot of really bad problems and important problems to solve, like faulty reporting and dashboards or, you know, the incorrect inputs for machine learning models that that are then shown to the end consumer in some way or for um, an ETL pipeline, which is basically sending data from one place to another, something can get messed up. So, you know, data correctness and having high quality data is, is probably the most important problem uh, within the data data world. Uh especially, you know, after storage, when you're actually trying to analyze this data, having correct data is the most important. So Monte Carlo kind of enables um, all of that. Um, how we came across, um, you know, Monte Carlo, and actually this category broadly was just, you know, we were closely involved uh, with the data infrastructure category since the earliest of days. So, yeah, okay. you know, we, at, at Redpoint, we led the Series B into Snowflake back in 2015. Um Subsequently, we've invested in a lot of data infrastructure businesses like Looker and Dremio. So I think um, we were very close to the problem even before it became a category and companies came out because we realized that, you know, data downtime uh, was an issue. And that, you know, I think in the beginning, when you look at like data observability as a category, you know, I think a lot of folks were like, "Is is this standalone? But we kind of knew from day one how important of a problem it was. To enabling downstream um, data use cases, so you know, I think one the Monte Carlo team was kind of first to market, uh, where they were the first ones to kind of use data observability and data downtime as as slogans. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how we came across the investment. Got it. And with regards to kind of uh, this concept of value adds from a venture capital firm, you know, uh, the team could have obviously. Uh, gone to other VCs, potentially get funding from them. But what made Redpoint for you potentially stand out uh, in terms of providing? Was it that expertise in that domain uh, that gave them some somewhat of that comfort level 
of saying, yeah, you guys should be our lead? Yeah, you know, I think it's, you know, uh, you know, we, we were lucky. We were involved in businesses like Snowflake and Looker from the earliest of days. Um, Monte Carlo is a natural extension of those businesses um, and, and very similar to those businesses. So one, I think it's our track record in the space. Two, and you know, going back into, you know, what, why Redpoint, um, we do maybe five, four or five growth investments, you know, a year. And yeah. this is uh, in stark contrast to other funds that do 30, 40, where a partner is sitting on 10, 20 different boards at one time. Uh, whereas, you know, we sit on max kind of three to four to five boards in each fund. And that allows us to be, you know, the first call, uh, good or bad for, for these founders and really be there and offer a, a, a true white glove approach um, to, to scaling their businesses. And, you know, wh whether it's a form of uh, accelerating, accelerating your go-to-market or finding that next hire, we we really pride ourselves on on doing that from from day one and actually even before day one even before we make that investment so you know monte carlo specifically we were helping tremendous we were helping bar and lior the founders um a lot you know even even before that investment got it it's that relationship that you kind of build out prior yeah. to that builds an extension into kind of what they're doing in the future totally got it and so many of us don't understand actually the life cycle of how a deal gets approved or gets that green light. So maybe from your team's perspective, could you kind of walk us through the process, the diligence and stuff like that you have to do to say, yes, this is a good investment decision. Let's go forward for it. Yeah. You know, I think there are a lot of different, um, at least check boxes that we have in terms of, you know, market, uh, customer feedback, um, financials, metrics. I think we try to check all of those boxes, but the most important I think is, you know, our, we're getting into a relationship effectively with a founder for the next probably decade. And are we really comfortable with that founder? You know, yeah, I think there are a lot of businesses um, that check those boxes that every, that every uh, investment fund has. What got us really excited about Monte Carlo was just the founding team, you know, um, Bar, Bar Moses and Leo Gavish. They, they were true visionaries in the sense that they knew that this was going to be a really important market. They were already assembling a really strong team around that. And they're, you know, currently 12 to 18 months ahead of their the other competition uh, in this space. And they're really innovating and actually creating this category and making it, um, making it you know, making it a thing. And it, it goes back into just backing really, really exceptional founders and, and um, Barr and Lior fit that bill uh, easily. Got it. And uh, what's the best piece of advice you have for founders to make sure they nurture the best possible relationship with their VC or specifically, let's just say the board uh, member that you've assigned to the company? Yeah, you know, I think it's more so the it's it's the VC and, and board member being there at, at, at every second for every call, good or bad. I think, um, you know, founders shouldn't be uh, scared of having like a weekly check-in, for example, and just talking through problems. Um, they, uh, you know, we should be we should be able to they should be able to leverage us for a lot of different reasons, um, and, and we are hopefully allowing them to see around corners. Uh, and that's 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 our most important job. And so, when when the team at Monte Carlo kind of uh, approached you, um, you know. What types of factors come into play in terms of the total investment size? I know they have an ask for sure, yeah. but like from how you sit and how you kind of uh, understand like how much money we're going to put into this, like how does that evaluation process work? Because, you know, 
you have to think about long term of like CD and how we kind of fit in the ecosystem and other players uh, investing at the same time. Yeah, you know, totally. In the case of Monte Carlo, they didn't they didn't need to raise um, that cash at that time. You know, okay. it's more so like we came to them. We're like, please let us be involved in your journey. Okay, uh, got it. In any way, and I, you know, it goes back into kind of our fund model on the growth side. We have you know a seven hundred fifty million dollar fund. We want to deploy that across fifteen to eighteen net new investments each fund. So the math is that you know maybe hopefully we can at least put in like twenty twenty five million dollars. On, on the first shot, um, and then uh, really double down, which we've done in, in the case of Monte Carlo, an exceptional business, you know, and, and so yeah, the math was, let's, let's try to put in our usual slug in and from there kind of negotiate, it was, you know, putting in that amount of money at that time for um, would have been a little early, but it, it all worked out. Right. And an extension of that is just kind of thinking about this idea of unit economics. So, you know, a lot of businesses are not profitable, specifically like, like say tech companies, you know, growth at all cost. Yeah. Where do you kind of see the future of say tech business and business models going? Is it kind of being more lean and focusing on getting to profitability earlier or it's dependent on kind of the industry and what you're building? Yeah, you know, I think it, yeah, it, it, it depends on the industry and what you're building. But typically for these venture backed businesses, you know, the model has been fund this growth at all costs. We're going to figure out profitability later, the path to profitability later. And I think that's hurt um, a couple of, you know, businesses that have entered the public markets, but haven't fully solved um, that profitability uh, question and have those levers that they can adjust to be, become profitable. So I think, you know, the the mindset is still hey let's let's grow this business you know really quickly this is a venture size venture scale business this isn't some family run business um, but let's understand the underlying unit economics a little better uh, let's understand the cost of that top line growth you know and and understand maybe the underlying burn maybe you don't need to hire that one extra person maybe you can uh, operate in this way you know a little bit more and optimize your business. Um, so yeah, the conversations have definitely shifted more towards, do we need to actually spend that money on this? What, and it's looking at the ROI of, of how you're spending that cash. But, you know, in general, these, these venture scale businesses are going to burn, um, a good amount of cash in the beginning, but the, the, the definite change, um, in the model is that, Hey, we're going to, we're proving that our unit economics are improving over time and that there is a path to profitability and sustained profitability in the future. Got it. And so give me like for you, uh, give me two like key metrics that a series A shifting into series B founder should evaluate their business on. Let's just give the case of like a data infrastructure uh, company. Um, let's just shy away from like the typical stuff like revenue, top line and other things. Any like key metrics that are really important to say this business is doing really well uh, or is kind of lopsided? Yeah, you know, I think. One is if this business is actually, uh, you know, making revenue, I think we like to go a layer deeper and double click more on that. So a metric that we love to track is, is net dollar retention or, or net revenue retention. Um, and that's a really important metric, you know, are you, and it, and it not only shows, you can tell if your business is growing quickly, if you have a high NDR, but it also shows another way to just show that there's product love and customer love, uh, that your existing customers, you're able to upsell them on the existing product or various products in a really, uh, really strong manner. Um, 
and it just kind of can then that's a great leading indicator that maybe you can build a multi-product business around this and that there is like a true platform business that's being built um so net net dollar retention um is is really important and when you look at the public markets the the companies that have the highest uh, multiple currently are businesses like Snowflake and Datadog, um, where they have an extremely high net dollar retention. You know, take take Datadog for example. I think their NDR is somewhere close to 140 percent. That just means that on their existing base, if they weren't uh, to sell a dollar to a net new uh, customer, um, they're still going to grow 40 percent next yeah. year. Yeah, which yeah. is insane. And then that creates like a really easy base. For you to then start selling into newer customers and grow double so like these businesses like datadog and snowflake they're they're doubling year over year at massive scale which we've never seen before so i think that dollar retention um is a great metric the other is just um we just love looking at uh core customer data customer signups is there a lot of churn that's happening um you know and then there are a lot of other metrics that are associated with that like increasing acvs all of that but yeah i think we like to take a very customer-centric approach to to those to those kinds of businesses got it earlier you mentioned this idea of a visionary and so it's a, t- a term that's so often used but not well understood so how do you define visionary and why are they so special yeah i think a visionary is someone um you know we i think going back we said you know really a founder is really obsessed about one single problem um is going to be successful. But yeah, no, I think you need to pair that with being a visionary and that like, what can this eventually become? What are um, products two, three, and four that you can roll out? What are you, what is this business going to eventually become? And I think a visionary can see that from day one um, and not maybe build to that over time. So that's, that's what makes a visionary so special. If you were to say like, let's just say beyond your portfolio of today, but if there's one ideal visionary that comes to mind, who is that? For you yeah it's probably um you know going back to like i'm very familiar with the infrastructure markets i think it's a company like datadog uh you know olivier there the, the ceo they started in apm then they got into infrastructure monitoring now tracing they built uh a, you know a three four product business and now they're getting into security everyone thought that this was just like an infrastructure monitoring tool in the earliest of days it was going to tap out at some point but they're building a real platform here um and so yeah, that goes back into being really obsessive about one problem in the beginning, layering on a lot of other products and entering adjacent markets with that initial wedge, and then just going broader from there. But yeah, you know, you need it to be a visionary to, to see all of that. Got it. And in your opinion, are visionaries better executors or storytellers? And yeah. like, what do you feel is more important? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one. I think the visionary, you know, I, I will lean towards more being a storyteller uh, in the beginning. I think you can put some really smart executors around you, still hold that vision and, you know, be, be, be a visionary. Um, I think in the long run, you, should, you need to be a better storyteller uh, and, and that, that should work out if you're able to hire well. Got it. And so uh, more of a general based question now coming into like uh, entering as a career into venture. What steps, if I were to want go into venture, should I take uh, today um, to enter the market? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's um, kind of understanding, you know, one, if you were, uh, if you did have some money and you were in the shoes of, of an investor, what kinds of companies do you find most interesting? What spaces 
you find most interesting. Um, it's following those businesses and the founders in that market. Um, and then from there, it's kind of looking at um, the, those different funds that specialize in what you're interested in. So if it's consumer investing, it's these funds. If it's you know cybersecurity investing, it's these funds. Um, and then from there, it's it's meeting it's meeting founders, it's meeting VCs, it's networking. You know, uh, so much of my day to day is just networking with other VCs, and that's such an important skill. So building that even before you know starting day one is is will be will be important. Got it. And uh, networking, how, how should I how how should one approach it in making sure that one it's authentic, but two they actually develop a relationship because. Sometimes, you know, you might come off as transactional. You don't want that. So, like, what's your process in terms of networking and making sure it's a valuable relationship that you're building out? Yeah, you know, for for me, it's it's meeting perhaps um, an investor that shares the similar interests to me. Like, for example, within infrastructure and enterprise software investing, we can bounce back ideas back and forth. It, it, It isn't as transactional as, hey... What deals are you doing? What is your most successful or what's what companies are working in your portfolio? It's like, hey, what should we both be chasing? Um, what what uh, what markets are the most interesting? This is a really cool startup that's come out in this market. You know, wanted to flag it to you because I know you're interested in, in cybersecurity, for example. So, yeah, you can make it more of kind of a learning process with them. Um, and, and so that it's not as transactional. Got it. So, sorry, that's kind of the bulk of the podcast there. Um, cool. You know, one thing we always love uh, ending off with is a little lightning round. So four little questions, a couple uh, seconds to answer each one. So let me know when you're ready to go. All right, let's do it. All right, first question, uh, favorite book of all time? It will have to be um, Open, which is Andre Agassi's autobiography. Uh, okay, love, well, I haven't read that, that but yeah, awesome. You have awesome. or have I have, have not, have not. That's the first time I actually heard of it, so... I'll yeah, put that on my I'm, list. A, I'm a huge uh, tennis fan. I used to be a tennis player, and and yeah, just just reading that book was was great. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would that be? Okay, um, I'll have two answers. One for alive is again a massive tennis fan, Roger Federer, probably. Uh, and and dad would be um, let's see, Abe Abe Lincoln. Oh, cool, cool. Um, thoughts on singularity? Yeah, you know, I don't. I think it's. Uh, I'm a huge sci-fi fan and 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 fiction fan, and uh, I think the hypothetical future where you know technology is is out of control. I I, I don't see that happening. Um, but you know, jury's still out. Maybe with AI and all these bots, who knows? But I I, I don't think so. Yeah, hopefully Boston Dynamics doesn't come up with some next new technology yeah. that kind of destroys everything. Uh, last question here. Uh, do you like pineapple on your pizza? Yes or no? Definite no. That's that's too weird for me. Okay, sounds good. You know, we're on the same page there. We've had, we've had a couple of fights around the idea of pineapple on pizza. So nah, yeah, that's, uh, good, that's to, hard good to know you're on my side. All right. So sorry, that's kind of the end of the podcast there. Uh, any last words for the, our, our, our audience and where can potential founders uh, listening to this find you? Yeah, you know, you, you can uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at SciVC. Uh, and uh, yeah, we we would love to speak with with all of you. 
Uh, and so don't, don't, uh, you know, would love for you guys to hit us up. Oh, 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 oh,